0: that, but we're good. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, <laughs> so we have a bunch. Okay. Ooh. Hello, everyone. Hello. Sorry for the late start. Of all days, I ordered a new phone today, <laughs> and, like, you know, you can't, like, wait. I just... Started setting it up a couple yeah. hours ago, and there you go. Okay, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm gonna jump in quick tonight because we've got so much ground to cover. So let's pray. In the, name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, bless us tonight. Give us faith. Jesus, I pray for everyone here that they would be able to leave behind what happened today. That you do the same for me. Lord, give us freedom from our anxieties and from our busyness, that we might encounter you, that we might know you, uh, that we might see your glory. We make our prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. the Holy Spirit. All right, tonight what I want to do is we want to dive in. We're still on that second question, and I want to hit it hard tonight. What does it mean to have faith? And how does someone get to a place where they can have faith? It's so one of the deepest questions. I cannot answer it fully, but we're going to try tonight. Um, so, how are we going to do that? So, here we go. Um, Sorry, what? No. Oh. Okay, so last week there was a Chesterton quote I used. I think it was last week. I'm 40 now. I forget things. But. Chesterton has a quote where he says, If you were on safari and you heard hyenas, you would be tempted to think that a hyena was a lion. But when a lion roars, there is no mistaking it. And what we want to say about Jesus is that when he entered the world, right, the lion roared. And tonight we're going to try to dive in deeply into what does it mean to be a person of faith. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, Patrick had some of those tonight. The, Catechism, the great thing about the Catechism is if you go to a different Christian denomination other than the Catholic Church, there are different churches that have something like this, but not as much anymore. It's hard to know what they actually believe. Now, in Catholicism, that can be true, too. You can say, well, you know, Father Brian, you said this, but I went and talked to, you know, Father Jehoshaphat, and he said this. The great thing, I don't have one in front of me, but um, the great thing about the Catholic faith is there is official teaching. And if you're coming from a Protestant background, our Protestant brothers and sisters do many things much better than we do and they do things better than I will ever do them in many ways. One of my biggest critiques of them is people like their church based on whether or not they like their pastor. And their teaching changes on whatever the pastor happens to think is right. One of the reasons I am a Catholic is there is official Catholic teaching, and it is consistent through time. So, have there been Catholics who teach something wrong? Of course there are. But the great thing in Catholicism is there's a way of knowing when they're teaching something that is not Catholic teaching. The Catechism of the Catholic Church represents the easiest way to look into that. If you find it in the Catechism, it is official Catholic teaching. That's awesome. Because the danger all of us have, as I always say, think of someone right now that you can't stand, and imagine them saying something really true. Are you like they would never do that? Right? <laughs> the danger we have as as human beings is that we're just we all pretend like the way I live my life is I thought very carefully. I'm very very intelligent. I thought through every angle. And I decided this was the truth. The reality is that most of us aren't really... We have some aspect of that to us, but we have a lot of parts of us that aren't really like that. We're human beings, and that's good. We're supposed to have hearts and flesh and blood and all those things. But what that means is sometimes we believe something's true because we like the person behind it. One of the reasons I am a Catholic is because when you go to, you know, a Catholic Mass today, you go to the same Mass that St. Irenaeus went to in the 2nd century. Language might be different. There might be minor differences, but it's the same Mass. When you go to a Catholic, um, when you get Catholic teaching today, you're going to get the same thing that St. Augustine received in the 4th century from St. Ambrose. You get the same thing that St. Bernard of Clairvaux received in the, what, the 9th century. No, he's later than that. Whenever he was. There's something incredibly compelling about that. Okay, how did I get on this? I'm serious. <laughs> so that's what the catechism is. So the catechism is a great way to say hey, FB, we think you're great, you've got great hair. But how do I know this isn't just you that I kind of like, Father Brian? How do I know that this is something that's more solid than that? You should be asking that. I hope you like me. I hope we become friends. I do always hope for that. But we're talking about something much deeper than that here. Um. Yes. So, question on that, like coming from a Protestant background, I think that's like I agree that people do kind of choose their churches based on that. Yep. And Catholics do to a certain in extent. General, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my question. I guess is like. I like. I feel like I've been to a number of Catholic churches where I feel like, the, like the homily that week, or whatever, or like consistently mm-hmm. maybe, is like not really giving me a lot of like spiritual like, yep. like feeding. And so, is it like wrong to choose? I don't know you're gonna put me on the spot. Like <laughs> <laughs> a parish for that reason. Yeah. Is it wrong to choose a parish based on if you like the priest or if you like the preaching? I like the music, so there's a, there's a both end here. So the danger is what we don't want. It's called a personality in the church. That's and for priests, it's super dangerous. I have friends who like have kind of been invited to be like nationally known kind of types. And one of my friends in particular, I love this about him. I hate other things about you if you're out there. No, he's not. He's not watching. But I love this about him. A good friend of mine who's a priest, this is not me, um, was asked basically to become a national figure. And he turned it down because he said it's not good for my soul. He said, I'm supposed to be a humble priest who just serves. And I love that. Um, sometimes we need national figures. Sometimes God raises those people up. Okay, but can you go to church based on this? So we don't want cult of personality Right? We want the church to be the same. And you want to get to a place where if you go to a church, and I do this for many, many years of my life, you go to a church where the homily's terrible, the music's worse, right? The person next to you thinks they can sing and they can't. And when we get to the Eucharist, you'll see this. But you get to a place as a mature Catholic Christian that you're not there for that reason. You're there because Jesus Christ is present in the Eucharist. And you are there to worship God, not for him to give something to you. Now, that being said, do homilies and music matter? Hell, yes, they matter. And I want to scream at my brothers who are out there who don't work on their sermons. They are massively important. Um, And they help people tremendously. And so what I think is, yes, it's okay. You just got to be careful, though. What we have to do, and what Archbishop Aquila has said about this, is he says, if you go to a church that's not right next to where you live, he's basically, what he said is, please build community. Please really be a part of it. And that's what I think. is like we need, wherever you go to Mass, I always hope it will be here, but wherever you go to Mass, the church is not the priest, the church is the com- It's us. And honestly, RCIA, I'll just say this now, every year, you guys here tonight, and those of you guys watching online, you if you become Catholic, you will become some of the most devoted members of the Catholic faith on earth. And you are called not just to then be like, okay, RCIA is over, move on. Like, the people in this room should become your best friends. And you should choose to live your Catholic faith with others. And by the way, everyone wants that. And whenever I say this at every class, people are like, oh my gosh, Father Brian, I want that so bad. And I'm like, awesome, who did you talk to? They're like, no one. Would someone please come talk to me? And all of you say that, and it drives me crazy. And then you email me and you say, Father Brian, will you set me up with other friends? And I'm like, it's just like dating, I don't do setups, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, everyone wants it, talk to other people, I will help with that a little bit. So, in, so in like Baptist church that I grew up in, mm-hmm. they have Wednesday Bible study or Bible study before the service yep. where not the, not the pastor or not yep. not the deacon, a group of people get together. Do they have things like that? Lords is huge on that. So the question is about small groups. I want every, as far as, we'll never get 100%, but I want Lords to be a place where like, the music's awesome, the preaching's awesome, like, the community's awesome, the liturgies are beautiful and reverent. I think we have a lot of that. But also, where every person who goes to Lord's says my best friends go there. And like so like, when I was in my last church, I started a Bible study of um, young, either single or married people, but before they had kids, because I knew once they started having kids, they were gonna be like, yeah, we're not gonna make it, <laughs> right? But anyway, we started it. Now they all have kids. And they have all told me that those will be the best friends of their entire lives. They're raising their kids together. Um, They are in each other's lives. That's what I want for everybody. So, So yes, and once COVID, hopefully, once we move past this, help me do that. Everyone wants the same thing. Everyone wants deep friendships. My friends, the Rudolphs, they talk about how when they were at a different church, they were like, they walked into a church and they were like, when they stepped in, the average age dropped by 20 years. And they met one other couple that was like in their age range. And Danielle was super embarrassed, but Matt friend-stalked them. <laughs> so if you've been coming to Mass, we have this thing called the sign of peace. We're actually not doing it because of COVID. But where we offer, you know, we say peace be with you. And it's not a time to do this, but I get it once or twice. Matt was like, they went and sat by this other couple Mm-hmm. And, like, there's like the sign of peace. Let us offer you the sign of peace. And Matt turns to the guy he's like, Hey, let's hang out after Mass. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel's like, What are you doing? You're embarrassing me. Um, we should all be doing that. Okay. What the heck are we talking about? <laughs> we you were headed down to faith. What is faith? Alike? So let's talk about faith. Here we go. <clears throat> so. Chesterton says, right? If once you hear a lion, it should send chills up and down your spine. So here's what I want to do. If you have your handout in front of you, and if if you don't have um, a good Bible, the edition I recommend is called the RSV. The second edition. Or the first? It doesn't really matter. I actually prefer the first edition, but both are excellent. Not all scripture scholars, but overwhelmingly scripture scholars will tell you that this is the best translation in English right now. The other ones are good. If you have another Bible, that's fine. If you have one you're attached to, that's totally fine. So that stands for the Revised Standard Version. This is my old one. I'm transferring my notes into my new one, so this one's all chewed up. Um, But this is my old RSV Bible. Ignatius Press puts out this edition. They're beautiful. They're well done. I do recommend you have a Bible and you read it. You have to actually read it. Okay, so on your sheet, here's and before we do that, so here's how John's Gospel works. So John's Gospel is the last of the four, both in the Bible, and it's the last one to be written in time. And this is a good question. I just thought of this. Let me ask you guys. Just to make sure we're on the same page, what is a gospel? It is the Word of God, but there's other parts of the Bible that are the Word of God. What? It's telling of Jesus' life. Yeah, it's the story of Jesus' life. Right? And so there are four of those Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one scripture scholar I like says it's like, he says it's like a four-part harmony. They're all slightly different, and when you hear them like four voices singing together, and they're good voices, not like mine, it's so shockingly beautiful. It's amazing. But you could also, you know, imagine you could take one voice out and just listen to that one voice. You can do that. So the Gospels are the stories of the life of John's is the last one. I'm just going to use him as him, him as an example, but actually, all four of them have something very, very similar to this in their The way they tell it, yeah. Matthew, Mark, and who are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third, and then John. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, in John's Gospel, so John is trying to tell you, what I've been trying to say in RCIA, and you have a question, you say, "Who is this Jesus?" And all through the Gospels. You weren't meant to ask that question. You read the story, you know what I would say, you know what the church says, but in the gospel stories, everyone's asking that question. So in John chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man. And the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are Jewish higher-ups, they're saying, well, we think we know who this guy is. And the blind man's asking the question. He says, I don't know. He's like, I'm not sure yet. I'm not sure who he is. I know that I was blind, and I know he healed me. In Mark's gospel, the apostles, they're on a boat, and Jesus comes walking to them in the, on the, in the middle of the night. And he calms the storm. And he gets in the boat, and the apostles ask themselves, they say, who is this man? Okay, so what happens, though, in John's gospel, and I love the way this pans out, in John's gospel, there's two parts. And this is going to speak to your life, and where you're at with faith, you've got to wrestle with faith. Faith is not easy. Faith means you have to let go of yourself. It means you have to take a risk. It means you have to let go of yourself. It is not merely an intellectual exercise. So John has 21 chapters. And in chapter 1 to the end of chapter 12, scholars call this the Book of Signs. And the reason why is because John tells you that. So in John chapter 2 is the wedding feast of Cana. And these are the people we should listen to, are the gospel writers. And I've been studying them for a little over 20 years. And I will study them for the rest of my life. So this is, this is like, I'm giving you all of my hard work. You're welcome. <laughs> all right. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water into wine. And by the way, when we talk about Catholics and drinking... He creates a lot of wine. (laughs) A lot. Um, But anyway, so he creates all this wine, and then in verse 11, chapter 2 of John's Gospel, verse 11, um, it says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So John tells you, he kind of pauses. He says, here's what happened. And he hits the pause button. He says, hey, did you see that? This was the first of Jesus' signs that he performed. In the book of signs, in between chapter 1, or really chapter 2 there, and then to the end of chapter 12, Jesus Christ performs seven signs, and I bet you've have you ever asked God for a sign? Yeah. I have, right? Um, there's a great old John Mayer song that says, uh, and it's called Numb is the New Deep. You might know it, it's pretty catchy. Um, I want to sing it for you. But he has a line, I always think it's a song about faith. And he's wrestling with like, where the heck is God? And if God's around, he says, he say, and he says it explicitly in the song, he says, is there a God, why is he waiting when he knows my address? You ever thought that? Like, if God, if you're real, you're all-powerful, you know, I mean? you know me. You know where I'm at. It's kind of like that girl you were waiting to call you. right? Got my number. Whatever. Maybe you didn't. That's why I'm a priest. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> in chapter tw- So what happens, though, is, and this is super deep stuff, brothers and sisters, is to say, where's God? Where is he? And here's, th- here's what John's gospel wants to say to you. Is that you cannot force God to prove himself to you. The interesting thing is that he does it anyway. So Jesus goes ahead and he performs seven signs and then the top, the first hand, or a quote on your handout, John 12, 37, right at the end of John chapter 12. This is the hinge of John's gospel. Everything changes here. Everything shifts. So it says, and I'm going to back up a little bit before your quote um, So Jesus is talking about his death. He knows that his death is coming, and his ministry is drawing to a close. And he has done all these things. He has said, "I will show you everything. I will walk on water. I will multiply the loaves and the fish." I will raise the dead, which he does in John 11. Um, but then here in chapter 12, he says, it says, When Jesus had said this, he departed and hid himself from them. By the way, God is bigger than you. If you are proud and you say to God, if you're real, bow down to me, and you will prove yourself to me, which is what most of us do, he will hide himself from Let me say that again. This is massively important. God does not reveal himself to the proud. If you are to see who God is, you must humble yourself. So Jesus had said this. He departed and hid himself from them. And here's the verse on your handout. Though he had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe in him. Here is what I want to say to you: I don't know the human heart. I don't know pe- people who don't believe in God who aren't Christians. I am not God. I don't know their hearts, but I have met a lot of people, and when and usually what they do, and they say. I'm not a Christian. There's a million different reasons why people aren't Christians. But I but you have to surrender something to see God. And I have met a number of people, I don't know how many, who refuse to do that. God is not a math equation, He is something far greater than you. And you have to surrender something. Okay, so, they didn't believe. They didn't believe. One more story. You guys know who Stephen Hawking is? Mm -hmm. Brilliant astrophysicist. Um, Stephen Hawking, I remember watching an interview with him, and, I mean, the guy's light years smarter, no pun intended, than I will ever be. But, he was debating, there's a priest he was debating uh, named Father uh, Spitzer. Is it Ed Spitzer or what's Spitzer's first name? Anyway. He was the president of Gonzaga University for a while. He was a Jesuit priest. He has a doctorate in philosophy. What is it? Robert, Robert Spitzer. He has a doctorate in philosophy and a doctorate in astroph- astrophysics. It's pretty impressive. He's on Larry King Live debating with uh, Stephen Hawking and Hawking's brilliant. But it just, when you watch this interview, Hawking did not want to believe. He didn't want to believe. He was trying to find a way to not believe that God existed. Okay, so here's what happens the point of John's Gospel, in his division, so that's chapter 1 through 12, chapters 13 through 21. 13 through 21, scholars refer to that part of John's gospel as the book of glory. Here's where we get to the depths of faith tonight. I can't just put it in a box for you, but I want to sit, tell you like, this is what it's about. So, after Jesus had done all these signs, right, and I just, can, I just want to say in on lives, sometimes he does this, it doesn't work. And so, John finishes that section with that quote, even though he did all these signs, they did not believe in him. The only, what brings the world to believe in Christ is the crucifixion. And in all four Gospels, this is the truth. is that the apostles don't see, and the people don't quite see, they don't get it. They don't understand who he is. And it's only when the love of God is revealed in a tortured, crucified man that people finally see who he really is. Now, that's coupled with the resurrection, I need to add that. That's kind of an important footnote. Resurrection, of course. How do we get to that? Now, a couple more points here. I I want to do what I did for Mark's gospel as well. Um, So I brought this book tonight. I do not recommend it. It's one of the hardest books I've ever read in my life, even though it's super short. But I brought it for one reason. So this is Balthazar's book on how we know God exists. It's called Love Alone is Credible. And here's, here's what I want to get at tonight. This is dense stuff. So here we go. Um, what Balthazar says in this book is he says, when people want to prove God's existence, there are two traditional arguments in history for God's existence. One is called the anthropological... The anthropological, that anthropos is the Greek word for man. And what it does is it does some of the things we did at the beginning of class. It talks about humanity has a spiritual soul. It has to. You can't explain me if there's not a God. Right? You can't explain why I have an intellect and a will and I have freedom and I have knowledge and these different things. It's very, like, when you really study these things hard. It's just, it's just stupid to, to say that you have knowledge and freedom and say there can't be a God. There has to be a God. If you don't believe there's a God, you should be honest and say we also don't have freedom and we also don't know anything. Some people go that far and they say that. Okay, so that's the first argument traditionally. The second traditional argument is the cosmological this is the one we spent the most time on at the beginning of class, where we say the universe can't exist unless something holds it in existence. And here's, my, here's what I'm driving at. Balthazar in this book says both of those arguments work. They both work. They are, they are philosophically airtight. They have never been refuted. They never will be refuted because they can't be refuted. But what he says is it doesn't actually change people's hearts. And so the title of this book is Love Alone is Credible. Balthazar, one of the most intelligent people who has ever lived, says that at the end of the day, what we're trying to do, when we try to say, is Jesus God, here's what we're doing, is we take some sort of measure... And we say, whenever you want to know something that you're not certain about, you say, here's something I do know, I'm gonna apply it to something I don't know to see if I can figure it out. Right, so like, I don't know, at the top of my mind, I think of astronomy, right? Like like astronomers of the ages, they said, we don't understand how the stars move the way they do, but I do know how math works. So I'm gonna take math, I'm gonna apply it to how the stars move, right? Whenever we don't know something, we take something we do know and we try to use that to understand something we don't. And so in our question about, is Jesus God? What we all do is we look for a measure and we apply it to Jesus. And we say, somehow, how do I know that Jesus is God? Here's Balthazar's answer. Um, and one story, and I get to cry because I do it every week, I get emotional. Okay. Mom, thanks a lot. Dad, I think it's your fault too. Mm-hmm. Um, so the cover of this book, the only reason I brought the actual book tonight, and whoever chose the cover, it wasn't Balthazar, but whoever chose it, I, they get an A+. Um, Got to get through this one. Um, there's a carving in a wall on this, one. anybody wants to see it, and I'll hold it up to the camera. It's probably hard to see. Can you see it all, stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just be blasted on my face in there. You know? um, what it is, it's a, it's a carving in a wall. You can see it? Great. It's carving in the wall of an image of Jesus and his Sacred Heart. <laughs> what, what you don't know, unless you get the book, is that that was carved by a prisoner at in Auschwitz into the wall. You know, it's hard to get through that one. And what Balthazar says in this book is one of my favorite lines. Is he says, what we try to do, the usual measure people try to do is they say, I'm a smart guy, I'm a smart girl. I get it. I've got life figured out. So I will use my mind as my measure to understand if Jesus is God. And what Balthazar says is that the eternal God is, is so infinitely beyond you that for you to think you could understand him with your mind is, is sort of the height of arrogance. But what he does say is, he says, your heart, though, the one thing in a human being that can stretch to the infinite is your heart. And so what Balthazar says is, he says, the cross of Jesus Christ is the moment in all of history when true love is revealed. This is that class this year. <laughs> um, the cross of Jesus Christ, there is nothing like it in history. There will never be anything like it again. St. Paul, in Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, Paul, who wasn't there, uh, and there were lots of people crucified in his time, but Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh is the key part. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Love that line, Galatians 2.20. Balthazar in this book says, he says that all of us talk about love like we know what it is. And we kind of do. We know, of course, we know something about love. But Balthazar says, if you are, if you can be real for a minute in your life, if you can be real and stand underneath the cross of the crucified Christ, in that moment, you will know that you do not know what love is. And that the supreme sacrifice that he carried on the cross puts all of our ideas of what love is to shame. And so what Balzer wants to say is that we can't measure God, but actually what happens when you become a Christian is that God measures I know this is very deep stuff. Um, one more story, and then I want to read a couple of these quotes. Uh, all I can tell you, when I, was, when I had my like adult kind of embrace of my faith, I could not have told you any of this. I could not have explained a single thing about John's gospel. I couldn't tell you that the apostles didn't get it, and then they did. I knew nothing. I couldn't have told you what the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament was. But the beginnings of my faith as an adult, when we get to sacraments to talk about how it was actually my baptism, but as an adult, when I was a teenager, well, I guess I wasn't an adult. As a teenager, my senior year of high school, the beginning of my faith, was that I would go to Mass at my home parish, St. Francis Cabrini. Um, and at Cabrini, I was bored out of my mind. And I mostly went because my friend Sean Corrigan was going, and we kind of went because there were girls at Mass. And I would zone, or it didn't work out too well, um, I would zone out, and I was just bored out of my mind. What happened my senior year of high school, I had seen the crucifix a thousand times. But something changed in me in my senior year of high school, where I began to see it as if I had never seen it before. And just like Balthazar says, I wouldn't have been as articulate. I couldn't have said that at the time. But somehow, I knew that that man was up there for me. And that spoke more profoundly to the depths of my soul than any head knowledge I have ever possessed in my entire life. How do you know something's true? Knowledge is a relationship. Knowledge in the traditional understanding means that in me, knowledge means there's an object. And then my idea of the object and the object itself line up. So my idea of a tree in my mind matches the tree in itself. That's the traditional idea of what knowledge is. Right? Some correspondence. So there's some some kind of harmony that matches here. What What Balthazar wants to say to us, is that love is actually a deeper form of knowledge than your intellect can have. It can't contradict it. It has to line up. Otherwise, we fall into the forms of Christianity and say, don't ask hard questions, just feel. That's not true either. But there's something in me, and that love, love is actually in its depths, not love of like, I saw a cute girl, and like I couldn't go to class that day. But real love, the real type of love that Christ shows us on the cross, that has spoken to hundreds of billions of people, I don't know if it's hundreds, maybe tens of billions of people in history, and has transformed life after life after life. One last thing, and then I promise I'll shut up. We'll pause. This is why Mother Teresa went and picked up lepers in Calcutta. This is why St. Francis of Assisi lost everything he had and embraced poverty. This is why St. Thomas Aquinas gave up everything he had to give his life to Christ. Every one of them, they all say the same thing. They say, I saw it. And this is it. Okay, let's pause. We're going to do a little more on faith tonight. but Let's pause. Questions? Yes? That's a very basic one. I'm pretty sure the short answer is <laughs> no, but I don't think there are any other <laughs> explanation. Yet. Yeah. So just confirming, John the Baptist who we heard about on Sunday is not Saint John the gospel. That's correct. So John the Baptist is not the same person as John the Gospel writer. Um, John the Baptist is Jesus's cousin. John the Evangelist is one of the sons of Zebedee. So James and John are brothers, and they were fishermen in Galilee. They come and follow Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel. Good question. Yeah, Steph. Um, So one of the questions is, do you recommend reading the Bible from front to back or reading a schedule instead? So the question is, do I recommend reading the Bible from back to front or a schedule instead? Schedule. And I would recommend, I think I've done this before in class, the book I recommend is called Walking with God or A Father Who Keeps His Promises. A Father Who Keeps His Promises has less detail it also has a bunch of tacky jokes and like Bible humor, but it's good. But that's the whole story of the Bible, because if you just read it by yourself, you're just like, it's hard to know what's going on. But if you read one of those with the Bible, you should read the Bible with it. It'll guide you. So Walking with God is by Tim Gray and Jeff Cavins. A Father Who Keeps His Promises is by Scott Hahn. Other questions? Yes. Like one more, sorry. So no, sorry. kind of on that same topic and the quote that you shared from St. Paul, uh-huh. one thing that I found myself wondering is I'm spending more time reading the Gospels independently or just yep. like the daily readings. Is like, okay, what was Jesus actually like as like a human being? Yep. Like, what, like, what did he joke about? And like, what did he do in his life besides what we know about him in the Gospels? And I'm just wondering if you have any books you could recommend in that thing because I want, you could Google it, but I wouldn't be confident that they would Be faithful. Yeah, Yeah, so we don't outside of the gospels, we don't fully know. And and we have to get comfortable with that. There are things we always wish the Bible would tell us that it doesn't. And we've got to get comfortable. So the my the, the scripture scholars I like the most, when they talk about what the gospels are, what we want is we want the manual with pictures. Right? Like I would love the manual like the history book with pictures. And it's like, here was Jesus as he walked on water, right? And, like, here's exactly what he found funny. He didn't like, you know, he liked um, salmon, but he didn't like, you know, sea bass. I mean, we, I would love to know that, actually. I find that interesting. It doesn't tell us. And what, so what my, one of my favorite scholars, a guy named Richard Bauckham, he says, we have to remember the Gospels understand themselves as witnesses. They are not there to teach you everything you could ever know about Jesus. That was never their goal. Because the goal of Christianity isn't for you to know every little detail about if Jesus likes bass or whatever. Did he eat shellfish? Probably not. Jews aren't allowed to eat it. Um, But that's, I could go on that one. Um, That's not the point, right? The point is can you see? Can you see who he really is? Um, Do you see his glory? So, so they're witnesses, yeah. And then the one I recommend that does that the best, actually. And you know what's funny? I can't even say that. The one I haven't seen it, but some of my good friends, there's a attempt at that right now called The Chosen. Oh, it's really good. Uh, so good. I hear it's amazing. Um, some of my friends are mad at me that I have not watched that yet. Um, but I've heard that is phenomenal, and it's The Chosen is a video, it's a series, and my understanding is it's a free app. It operates on donations as well, is that right? Yeah. yeah, there's a free app. I bought the DVDs so I could put them on the collection machine. Yeah, and you can buy the DVDs, whatever. I've heard it's really good. I, I do plan on watching that. That's a great thing. Um, They're using the proceeds from the sales to do the next season. Okay, very cool. And one, the one book I would recommend, Fulton Sheen was a Catholic bishop who's very faithful. He just he has a book just called Life of Christ. Fulton Sheen's very good, so I recommend that. And that's an easy, he's an easy-to-read author. I'm gonna send all of out. Yeah. Other questions? We've only got two hours of class left. You always say that, and I always wish it were true. So do I! Oh, really? So do I. Like, you know what's funny? We used to have two-hour classes, <laughs> and every year we talk about going back to two hours, but I'm like, oh, no one will come if we do two hours. Maybe they would. Okay, let's take a five-minute break. Yeah. And we'll start back up. If anybody wants to see Love Alone is Credible, it's just a cool cover, feel free to come grab that. If you want to see it. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 I'll have to work my way up. i have to work my way I'll have to work my way <laughs> Just on it. We Just the one curveball household to grow. We need to talk about Christmas for sure. Do we still celebrate it? Yeah. That's yeah. The first
1: <laughs> <First
0: person who's> to a aprendiz- <laughs> 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 so you put out uh, I so always the the yeah, years years. Years. yeah. So he's in he's he's a generation after he's a Jewish general and then Roman and a Jewish yeah. priest. He's kind of a life of what's going on at that time. No, he's been our Muslim. Is he really the first historian that has been in the Torah? In some sense, yeah. I mean, you might even say a lot. I don't know if there's something to I don't know. I started writing history once. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything to It's all in me now. Yeah, for sure. That's right. i was like got to start to start at the I know it not I mean, I was wearing Okay, folks, are we about ready? So, one of the things I hope you'll always do is when I'm able to put together quote sheets tonight, I was like doing it by the skin of my teeth before coming over here. Some of the stuff I will give you is extremely dense. And tonight, some of this stuff is very dense, but it's unbelievably beautiful. Um, And so I hope you'll take it home. I hope you'll hang on to it. I hope you'll read it again. Um, So I want to talk about some of the stuff that Balthazar says about faith. And what Balthazar is doing, by the way. So if you haven't heard me say this, Balthazar was a Catholic priest. Swiss theologian. He lived from like 1898 to 1988. Something like that. I forget. But he's, he basically lived the span of the 20th century. Um, as you know, he is hugely influential in my own way of thinking about Christianity. And most importantly for me, I think, when I read him, he inspires me to be a better priest. Um, but anyway, he's brilliant. But he's going to talk here. His I should have brought this tonight. One of his biggest books is called The Glory of the Lord. Again, I do not recommend it because, unless you have a theology degree. It is super dense. It's amazing. So go get a theology degree and then read The Glory of the Lord. It's, and basically the entire book, volume one. So we'll talk about this with time. God is the fullness in the Catholic tradition. And not just the fullness, but he is these things himself of what we call the transcendentals. So the transcendentals are truth, goodness, and beauty. And and Balthazar, and what we think of as Catholics, the way we think about those things is that God is not truthful, He is. So people will say, well, how how could God... Why is it bad to reject Jesus? Well, why is it bad to reject truth? Why is it bad to reject goodness? Why is it bad to reject beauty? No one would ever say such things. But Catholics, this is what we think about God. Is that God does not possess beauty. He is beauty himself. And in fact, he is so far beyond that word beautiful that when, when we call other things beautiful, it's almost like they're not even really beautiful because they're so far from what God is that it's like almost shameful to compare the two. So Balthazar wrote his biggest kind of collection of works um, were about these three things. And what he said is he said, traditionally in history, when people said, well, why should I be a Christian? People would say, well, Because Jesus Christ is the truth. Let me prove it to you. What Balthazar says is that in our time that you and I live in, right, you and I are cynical of the truth. When someone comes up to you and says, let me tell you something true, all of us, our walls go up, which wasn't true in previous times. But it is today. We don't like people telling us what's true. There's a long history as to why that's the case. We're skeptical of goodness. After the world wars and after the corruption of the modern world, people aren't really sure the world's a good place. So Balthazar's project, what he says to to the world and to the church, is that the the most likely way people come to God in our time is to start, they have to have all of them, but it's to start with beauty. And isn't, isn't that true? Like when beauty captivates us and it arrests us in a way that other things don't. Um, I don't even know why I got on this. But anyway, volume one, that book I'm referring to, the whole question that is, that is volume one, so the trilogy has 15 books in it. So I forget it, how it's broken up, but it's like, there's like four books that I, bought, that I wrote on beauty, and all of them are like 600 pages. And then there's like, you know, three books here, and then there's like six here or something. It's something like that. And it's all about understanding these things as men and women of the modern world, but as Christians, and how God brought these things into our world. Um, so the quote that I, we're going to look at is from his first book of that whole series, it's called The Glory of the Lord, Volume 1. So it's the third from the bottom. And Balthazar, what he's gonna do here is what he's saying is, if you came to RCIA, which probably a lot of you did, I would have. If you came to RCIA and you're like, what I want Father Brian to do to me, do for me, is to say, okay, three and seven equals God. that there's some kind of equation that I can outline for you that says if you get this and you add this you just do the arguments, it lines up bam, Jesus that's what he's going to go after and he's going to say you will never see God if that's your approach so this doesn't work so it is not as if one could by means of rational inquiry an argument, recognize him to be a perfect religious inspired. Right there, he's asking, like, what words should we use? It's not like you can just put together an argument and say, oh, yeah, look, there's Jesus must be whatever. Recognize him to be a perfect man, and then following the pointers provided by this rational knowledge, move to the conclusion that he is God's son and himself God. So that sentence is saying you can't do that. That if you just look for strict proofs, that's not what faith is. Provisionally, we can say that just as a natural form, a form is what something is. Right? When I when I hold this marker, right, its form is the type of thing it is. When I look at other human beings, you have a human form. It's not just your shape, it's the type of thing you are. A statue of a human is not the same form as an actual human. A form is what a thing is. Okay. We can say that just as a natural form, a flower, for instance, can be seen for what it is only when it is perceived and received as the appearance of a certain depth of life. When you look at a flower, you receive something into your soul that's able to see what that thing is. So too, Jesus' form can be seen for what it is only when it is grasped and accept it as the appearance of a divine depth transcending all worldly nature. Dense paragraph, right? Here's, now here's why I say Chesterton is saying the same thing, not as deep in a deep way. What Balthazar is saying in that paragraph is, when you hear a lion roar, you know what it is. There's something in you that's able to perceive what that is. Two more, hang with me. The ontological ascendancy God enjoys, don't you love, that could be our new band name, ontological ascendancy. That would be a great band name. The ontological ascendancy God enjoys in the heart and spirit of man precludes faith being defined in terms of a natural intellectual desire, that's the Latin, or any postulate of reason which would be to measure the divine by the human. Remember? right? We want to use a human measure to measure what is divine. And again, he's saying here we can't do that. To measure the divine by the human, it is not that we demand grace in virtue of our peculiar dynamism. It is grace with which both claims and expropriates us. What he's saying there, and I know these, I probably shouldn't have given you these, these are way too deep. Uh, that's no offense. I'm not <laughs> trying This insult your intellects. Um, what he's saying is that we can't measure the divine, the divine measures us. It's way too big. It's like it's like when um, you love your dog so much, but you try to explain Shakespeare to your dog. Like, good luck. So it's, it's way far beyond that. Okay, one more. Last quote on the bottom, that obedient surrender to the radiant light. That's what faith is. Faith is that Christ breaks into the world and into your soul and into your life. And if you can let go of yourself in love and in faith and in opening yourself to God, you experience what what St. Thomas Aquinas would say is divine light. Not a physical light, but something analogous in your soul. The obedient surrender to the radiant light I surrender to this light in my soul, in which alone by faith and not by vision he partakes in the wisdom of the self-revealing God. The more obediently he thinks, it must be thinks, not things, it's a great sentence, the more obediently he thinks, the more accurately he will see. Because the light of faith proportions his whole being as man, including, therefore, his intellect in such a way that it can receive the mystery. All right, let's just pause there because this is really deep stuff. What Balthasar is saying there in some way is that when you love someone, and human love is analogous here, it's not as deep. When you really love someone, you become obedient. When you love, you have to surrender. And what Balthazar says is that God is not someone who has truth, he is truth. God is not someone who has beauty, he is beauty. And in Christ, if we can let go, if we can open ourselves, and what that takes, and where I, I just can't, I'm beating a dead horse tonight, but I know like for some of you, like I've just never felt that. To be able to do that, you gotta engage in a serious way. Not just here. But right here, and you've got to take a step. C.S. Lewis says that when he says when he became a Christian, he wasn't trying to become a Christian, but he and he, said he wasn't interested at all. But he said it was massively important that for the first time in a long time in his life, he had decided to live a more moral and upright life. There's something about when we take a step. It opens us to see. Okay, there's a bunch more quotes. I want to do one last thing, though. I'm not even going to read this. But your first two quotes come from Mark 7 and 8. And here's, I just want to outline if you on the board what happens instead of reading it. This is so cool. Being a Christian means being someone who's on the way. We're talking about very deep things tonight, very intellectually deep, but very deep in terms of just the human experience. That doesn't happen just once. Sometimes there are amazing experiences that help us. Like, if you go to Eucharist adoration, which we'll talk about that, it's happening upstairs right now. People sometimes go into the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, and they're transformed. It's really cool. Like, I don't know why this happens, but whenever, like, like when I was a focused missionary, we would have these conferences, and there would be thousands of college students in the room. And the minute that Jesus' presence enters the room with the Blessed Sacrament, everyone cries. And you have all these kids who have not been in church in like 10 years. They're not even sure how they got to this conference. They're not sure they even believe in God. And everyone's just bawling uncontrollably. I'm like, I told you it was real. (laughs) One time, one more story. I was at that that very moment. We were here in Denver. I was a missionary in North Dakota. We brought like 40 students from North Dakota to Denver. And a lot of them had never been in adoration. We'll talk about that. But when we, what happened was we're sitting there and I had a bunch of guys who weren't sure if they believed in God. The monstrance, which is this gold like sunbeam type thing, I'll show it to you soon. It holds the Eucharist. It came in. The priest brought it into the room and has Jesus' presence there. And the minute the priest walked into the room, the college girl started screaming uncontrollably. There's two thousand kids at that conference. There was some kind of demonic something, and she, she was everything was silent. You couldn't see when it came in, because it was behind us. You couldn't actually s- even see, but it was like the creepiest thing you have ever heard in your entire life. Like 10 priests went outside with her and prayed over her, and all these guys in my Bible study who weren't sure if they were in or not were like, holy shit. <laughs> and I was like, I told you guys this is real. Um, Okay, but here's what's happening in Mark 7 and 8. So in Mark 7, um, what happens in that first quote is that Jesus heals a deaf man. He heals a deaf man. And in the scripture, all the way going back to the early Old Testament, but most prominently in Isaiah chapter 6, deafness and blindness don't mean physical deafness and blindness. They mean you don't get it. It means that your soul is clouded and you just can't see or hear. Spiritual deafness, spiritual blindness. So in Mark 7, Jesus heals a deaf man physically. In Mark 8, he heals a blind man. And here's the cool thing. When you read scripture, it will... The depths of scripture are so powerful, and you will you'll read it and you'll be like, There is no way that Mark came up with this. There's no way. The connections are unbelievable. And they just never end. But anyway, so Jesus heals deaf man, heals a blind man. In between, everyone's asking him for a sign. (laughs) See the irony? If you are who you say you are, give us a sign that you are God. If I were Jesus, I'd be like, Did you, do, you, do you remember that, like two minutes ago when I healed the deaf man? But he has a sign, and then in Mark 8, here we're, we're in this section, in Mark 8, the disciples get into a boat, oh, and by the way, Jesus feeds, he does that, and in the middle, he also feeds 4,000 people by multiplying bread by multiplication of the loaves. And actually, let's just read this really quick. So, your second second quote says, and this is in between the two healings, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus just multiplied for 4,000 people. They forgot bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, this is where you're like, Mark, are you stupid? (laughs) Which one is it? They forgot bread, but they had the one loaf. You don't have to be a genius, but like, there's a contradiction. Okay. We're into that in a second. They had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. The apostles are idiots. <laughs> right? That's what Mark's going to tell you. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Don't you get it? Having eyes, do you not see? And he says, Are your hearts hardened? Right? You can't see God. God doesn't just want your mind, he wants your heart. You will never see God if your heart's not open to him. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Jesus heals a deaf man, he heals a blind man, and in between he tells us that we are blind and deaf. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not understand? Here's a really cool thing. In the Gospels, understanding who Jesus is, and you can feel his frustration. Don't you get it yet? In the Gospels, understanding who Jesus is is always tied to understanding the bread. Right there in that passage, they're asking for a sign, and Jesus is talking about bread. And he's talking about his identity. And when we talk about the Eucharist, which will blow your freaking mind, that's like you will... If you don't become Catholic after the teaching on the Eucharist, like I'm just gonna like shake the dust from my feet. And I'm just kidding, not really. <laughs> this is what it means to be a Christian. The apostles weren't there yet. They were deaf and blind. And Mark's gospel is gonna say the same thing as John's gospel. Their hearts are, they're kind of getting there, they're taking a step, they're starting to walk. Only when Jesus dies and rises, I don't know how to draw the resurrection and take too long. Only then do they see. Okay, I've got one more thing I want to hit quickly tonight, but let's pause. Questions, thoughts, complaints? Yes, sir? What's the 12 and 7? <laughs> uh, that's hugely debated. I don't know that we really know one. They're <clears throat> the 12 is usually a symbol of Israel, and Jesus does. Here's Israel. Um, so in Israel when we go there so here's the Mediterranean um, you have the Sea of Galilee what happens here is that this is, this is the theory I think makes the most sense is that um, Jesus performs most of his miracles up here and then they're going to go to Jerusalem, which is the dot. This is the Dead Sea. Um, but what happens is that in Jesus' day, this side over here is Israel in the north. This side are pagans. And so when Jesus, oftentimes the numbers around the miracles, they have to do with Jesus. As St. Paul was saying in Romans one that Jesus comes first to the Jews, and then he'll go to the Gentiles. Um, so the, the, he'll perform a miracle of the, the loaves on this side, then they'll cross the water, and he'll do it on the other side. And so the numbers have to do, I think this is the best theory out there. We don't know 100%, but the best theory I've seen is the numbers relate to what Jesus is saying to his crowd. All right, any other questions?